James chapter 5 is what we'll be looking at today. Okay, I won't ask how many of you like controversy, but if you're one of those people, you're going to love this passage. Probably the most controversial passage in James. James 5 here, the the end of it's been uh, really a battleground for interpreters over the centuries uh, as various groups have tried to use this this passage here is a proof text for their beliefs. Just for example, how many of you heard of extreme unction? Former Catholics know about extreme unction. Uh, Roman Catholicism has used this particular text to support the sacrament. I think it's number five uh, of the seven sacraments called extreme unction. It wasn't until really around uh, the 1500s the the Council of Trent established the Catholic sacrament as we know it today. In that particular Catholic sacrament, what they do is they they, they take oil and apply it by a priest who who goes in and would touch the eyes, the ears, the nostrils, the mouth, hands, the kidneys, and the feet with a special concentrated or consecrated olive oil. Uh, usually it's restricted for, for patients who are on the verge of death. Uh, they're not the only ones who use this, by the way. Faith healers love this passage. Faith healers have used it to teach that all sick Christians are guaranteed healing through their prayers. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. And then there's other people who see here a precedent for anointing sick people with oil. So you can see it's uh, there's a little bit of a controversy uh, uh, you know here around this passage. How do we interpret it correctly? Because not everybody can be correct when there's all the various ideas on this. Well, as usual, the key to properly interpreting this passage and others, by the way, lies in understanding it within its context. The Bible, I hope you understand, is not just a random collection of passages. It's not a random collection of verses that, that, that just can be interpreted in isolation. If you do that, you're in big, big trouble. You can make the Bible say whatever you want. Uh, as, as I was told in seminary, if that is true, what do you do with verses like, Judas went out and hung himself? If you take that in isolation, does that mean that you go? You should go and do likewise? No, of course not. That's really dangerous. So to properly understand any passage, you have to interpret it in light of the paragraphs that are coming immediately before and the ones after. And, and then you also take into consideration, you know, what, what chapter is it in, what section is it in, even the entire book that it's contained in. Context provides a flow of thought in which any given passage of Scripture exists. So if you ignore the context, then you're going to sacrifice the proper interpretation. Therefore, before you attempt to interpret a passage like this, it's really important for us to... um, Let's let's just review very quickly uh, what, what the context is. This is really essential and helpful. May I remind you that James wrote this particular letter letter here to to Jewish Christians who had 
been forced to flee from the persecution that is mentioned in the book of Acts. In fact, in the very first verse of his letter here, he referred to these people as the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And so, because they were both Jewish as well as Christians, uh, well, that's, that's a double whammy. They were facing great hostility from the pagan culture in which they lived. And so, uh, you, you need to keep that in mind as you come to a passage like this. That's the context as he's writing to these persecuted Christians. And, and it's interesting, our passage today, all the way from verse 13 to 18, the, the whole context here is about prayer. In fact, it's mentioned in every one of those verses. And so James' exhortation to prayer here embraces the prayer life of the entire church. In fact, he, he, he says individuals are called to pray. In fact, you're called to pray for one another. Uh, elders in the church are called to pray in verses 14 and 15. And, and the congregation as a whole is exhorted to pray. And so the, the section is, is really reflecting a pastoral heart coming from James here. Uh, he, he's concerned about his suffering flock. And so his main focus here is, is on the, the casualties of the spiritual warfare that, uh, that, that Christians go through. Uh, the, these are people who are being persecuted. They're weak. And some of them are defeated Christians and they need some help. And so as the context and the, even the content of this section makes clear, I hope, uh, the subject is not talking about physical illness or healing. As, as uh, you, I've noticed even some of the commentators that I have in my library have mentioned. But instead, it, its concern is primarily with the healing of the spiritual weaknesses that come with being a persecuted group of people. Uh, we're talking about a group of people who are spiritually exhausted. They're, some of them were even spiritually depressed, and so they needed prayer. and They needed to pray. And so with that in mind, look at James 5, verse 13. Verse 13, James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months... It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And that ends the book of James, rather abruptly, doesn't it? But there you go. So, here's the main idea. 
pretty simple. Remember, James has been showing us what, what spiritual maturity looks like. So a spiritually mature Christian prays. That's what a Christian should be doing, praying. A strong commitment to prayer here is, is certainly a prerequisite for enduring suffering and affliction. So if I was to put it in propositional form, friends, here's God wants you to pray. God wants you to pray. And you say, well, that's great. What do I pray for? <laughs> well, James helps us here. In fact, he gives us several things we need to be praying for, or should we say even people whom we need to be praying for. Number one, pray for the suffering. We need to be praying for the suffering. In verse 13, that in the Greek original language of the Bible is present imperative. In other words, Present in Greek just means you are to continually do this, keep keep doing it. And imperative just means it's a command, it's not an option. This is something God tells you to do, He commands you to do it. Now interestingly enough here, praying for the suffering, this is a, again, present tense verb, translated here as let him pray. And so the, the idea is there, it's a continual pleading with God in prayer. And it could actually be translated, let him keep on praying. Let him keep on praying. So friends, when your life gets difficult, and if you become weak in your faith, and weary with persecution, and you seem to be crushed by your affliction, you must continually plead with God for Him to comfort you. Plead with God for Him to comfort you. It reminds me of a wonderful hymn that has brought great comfort to me over the years. Let me just sing to you some of the words of this beautiful hymn. The title of the hymn is, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And the author of the hymn says this, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. It's a good exhortation. That's what James is telling us. If you're suffering, you know someone who is suffering, pray. So what should we do when we find ourselves in trying circumstances? Well, James has already told us it's not right for us to grumble and complain and whinge and whine. And it's certainly not right for us to criticize saints who seem to have an easier time than we do. And James says it's certainly not right for you to blame God. We should pray. And James said in chapter 1, if you're lacking in wisdom, ask him for wisdom. 
so you can understand the situation a little better and use it to His glory. But did you know that prayer can remove affliction if it's God's will for you? That, that's a, an important qualification. Because <laughs> prayer can also give us grace that we need to endure the troubles, and we can then use them to accomplish God's perfect will. Uh, someone has said that God can transform your troubles into triumphs. He can. Not necessarily all the time. And for example, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, do you remember that story where the Apostle Paul says that he prayed three times that God might change his circumstances? He wanted that thorn in the flesh to be removed, and God's answer to the Apostle Paul's prayer was no. You do understand God doesn't always answer prayer with yes, I hope. Sometimes God answers with yes, sometimes He answers no, and sometimes the answer is wait. But for Paul, the answer was no, and so God gave Paul the grace that he needed to turn his weakness into strength. That's what God does sometimes. So it is important to pray for the suffering, and if you're one of those suffering, pray for yourself and ask for prayer from others. So what do we pray for? God wants us to pray. Well, number two, pray for the spiritually weak. Pray for the spiritually weak. Again, in Greek, this is an imperative in verses 14 through 16. It's not an option. We, we must play, pray for the spiritually weak. Now, I want you to notice there's some special characteristics that James is writing about here as he's describing the spiritually weak person. Now, I, I know some of your Bibles probably have the word sick. Uh, I think that's a bit of a confusing word to be using here. Uh, the context, I think, is, is, well, not I think, I know, is going to show us it's not referring to a physically ill person. It's a spiritually weak person. Let me explain. Here, here's some of the special characteristics in this particular case. Notice, number one, that the person is sick not because of a virus, but because of sin. They're sick because of sin. It's the uh, verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That's the context. It's talking about sin. And so the Greek text is literally saying, if he has been constantly sinning, and so James is describing a church member here who is sick because he's being disciplined by God. And so that's explaining here a little bit for you why he has to call upon the elders of the church uh, to, to come to his house because he's not able to go to the church meeting uh, to confess his sins. And so he asks the spiritual leaders to come to him. Uh, the, the other thing that characteristic needs to be mentioned here is the person then confesses his sins as verse 16 says therefore it says confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed why is that the case because sin is the is very dangerous particularly when you isolate yourself when, when you are isolated, you are extremely vulnerable to temptation. And so 
what does sin do? Sin seeks to remain private. It wants to remain secret. It doesn't want to come out into the light. And so what does God want to do? God wants to expose our sin, and He wants it to be dealt with, particularly in the loving fellowship of other Christians. Now notice, some of you come from interesting backgrounds. Notice the text does not say, go and confess your sins to a priest. It doesn't say that. Who are you supposed to confess your sins to? By the way, this is again a command. You confess your sins to other Christians. Now, may I suggest you you be selective. Be selective in who you confess your sins to here. But it doesn't say, go and confess your sins to a priest or a pastor. Why? Because God says that a mutual concern for one another here is the way that he wants you to combat your discouragement and downfall. So the cure is in personal confession. It's in the the prayerful concern for one another. And so so notice the, the context here showing us the healing is not in a bodily healing, but primarily in the healing of your soul. In the healing of your soul. And then the third interesting characteristic mentioned in the text here is the person is healed by the prayer of faith, verse 15 says. It's the prayer of faith that will save the one who is sick. Notice it is not the olive oil or whatever the oil is. The the oil isn't what saves you, okay? But it's the praying, the faith that saves. And you say, what is this prayer of faith that heals? Well, here's a cross-reference that might be helpful. I hope it's helpful. 1 John 5, verse 14. Here's a prayer of faith. Because the Apostle John says, This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. That's the prayer of faith. Notice a couple important things there. In order for that to be true, you must pray in God's will. You must pray in God's will. That's the only way you can have confidence that God is going to hear your prayer and answer it. But if that, if that is the case, then you can have this confidence. So the prayer of faith is a prayer that is offered when somebody knows the will of God, and then they, they're believing what God has said. Do you? Can, can you pray that kind of prayer? I hope you can it is possible. Now, there's some practical lessons from this particular section that must not be overlooked. So let me highlight some for you. Number one, first of all, disobedience to God can lead to sickness. Right? Let me give you some cross-references to think about. Right? Read Psalm 32. Not right now. Please don't do it right now. But in Psalm 32, David is talking about all the various effects that sin has had on his life. And so David's experience was was a, a, a situation where he's being affected by his sin, it's affecting his emotions, it's affecting his physical body, even down to his bones, he, he even talks about, or being affected by his sin. 
And so he tried to hide his sin, but God's afflicting him, God's disciplining him to bring him back to himself. And that's exactly what happened. Number two, sin affects the whole church. You don't sin in isolation. You can never sin alone because sin has this way of growing and affecting others. It's, it's kind of like yeast that the Gospels talk about, right? The, the yeast affects the entire lump of dough. Well, that's the way it is with sin. It affects the entire church. And so when it does, your sin then needs to be confessed to the church. However wide your sin is, it, it needs to be confessed to that point. And number three, there is healing, both physical and spiritual, when your sin is dealt with. I love Proverbs 28, verse 13. Wonderful verse. Here's what it says. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Right? You, you, you must deal with your, your greatest problem is your sin. You have to deal with it, friends. Don't hide your sin. Don't attempt to cover it up because you will not prosper. Don't delay in confessing your sin. Agree with God about your sin. Deal with it so that you can prosper. All right, so God wants us to pray, but what, what do we pray for? Number three, pray for your country. Pray for your country. James uses a, an illustration. You know by now James loves illustrations, and he's been using lots of them in his book. And so he uses the illustration of the prophet Elijah in verse 17. Because he says in verse 17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently. So let me tell you a little bit about Elijah. If you're not familiar with 1 Kings verse, chapter 17 and 18, uh, we see, as James mentions, that Elijah here is the example of someone who is a righteous man whose prayers released God's power on his nation. And so the background is, is coming from 1 Kings, but hopefully you remember about uh, the context there. There was a, a very wicked king by the name of Ahab who had a wonderful wife by the name of Jezebel. I'm saying that sarcastically. And she was the queen, and uh, they had led Israel away from Yahweh and into the worship of Baal, a, a false god. And so, as God often does, he punished the nation of Israel by holding back the rain for three and a half years. Imagine what that would do to our country if we had no rain for three and a half years. <laughs> that would be horrible. And so the earth was unable to produce the crops that it needed uh, to, to sustain life. And then the Bible says that Elijah eventually challenged the false prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. All day long, the Bible says, the priests were crying out to their false god. And it's, it's, it's interesting. I love, I love that story in 1 Kings. Because the Bible says... They were so desperate, they were even jumping on top of the altar. If you, By the way, just think about that for a moment. If you think fire is going to fall from heaven on an altar, do you really want to be standing on top of the altar? Anyway, that's a funny story. And then, then don't you love the prophet Elijah's sarcasm as these guys are dancing around, cutting themselves, and doing all their crazy things? 
he's really sarcastic. It's funny. You should read it. But anyway, so th- th- that's what's happening. And, and so they spend all these hours doing this sort of stuff. And so then it eventually comes to Elijah's turn, because, of course, they fail, because there is no God called Baal. And so at the time of the evening sacrifice, the Bible says that Elijah repaired the altar, he prepared the sacrifice, and he gives one short prayer, and God sent fire from heaven, and he even burned up the stones <laughs> and the water. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a great story. And so in the process, proved that Jehovah was the true God. But you know, the nation still needed rain. And so after that wonderful event, Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he prayed to God again. And and the Bible says he did that seven times, because God didn't answer immediately the first time. And so eventually, after doing that seven times, there was rain, and the nation was saved. But some argue that Elijah was some very special, unusual person. If that's the case, notice verse 17 in your Bible of James 5, because it says that Elijah was not some unique, special person. It says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, like yours. In other words, he's not perfect. He's not Jesus. In fact, if you know the story in 1 Kings, right after the glorious victory on Mount Carmel, you remember that Elijah became afraid because the you know he he gets this uh, this death threat from Queen Jezebel and he becomes discouraged and he ran away. But he was a righteous man, as James calls him. And the idea of being a righteous man is the idea is he was obedient to God. He was trusting God. God's promises of answered. Prayer, by the way, are for all of his children. It's not just for the so-called spiritual elite and the prophets like Elijah. So Elijah was not only believing in his praying, but notice he was persistent in his praying. Let me just highlight a few things about prayer here. Because Elijah was persistent. Uh, The idea is here in verses 17 and 18 that he prayed and he prayed again. In, first, in, in fact, remember, First Kings mentions he prayed seven times in that example. And so on Mount Carmel, Elijah continued to pray for the rain until God answered with a yes. Well, that's very instructive for us because too many times we fail to get what God promises because we stop too early. We, we just stop. We give up. And so the, the exhortation might be for you, friend, is don't give up. Be persistent in your praying. The other thing we can learn here from Elijah's praying is he was determined and he's, he's very concerned in his praying because notice verse 17 says that he prayed fervently. The literal Greek reads, and he prayed in prayer. Now many people do not pray in their prayers. I hope you understand the difference. Because you can just, you can just verbalize words and not be praying. Right? As Jesus Uh, talks about in his model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about just vain repetitions. 
You know, some people just use beads and say the same thing every single day, or, you know, they might uh, they might bow toward Mecca every single day, several times a day, saying the same thing. Uh, and Christian people who claim to be Christians can just say the same things, and they're saying words, but it's just emptiness. And so many people do not pray in their prayers; they become very lazy in their religious words their hearts aren't actually in their prayers but elijah's heart was in his prayer that's the idea is when he's praying fervently and so he prayed for his nation and thankfully god answered his prayer and so friends you also need to pray for your nation today our nation needs it your your leaders even the unsaved leaders of our nation need your prayers the apostle paul even told Timothy to pray for the government, pray for city council leaders and so forth, that you may live a quiet and peaceful life. So pray for your country, but the passage ends, and you know, some consider this quite awkward, but I think it goes, actually goes well in the context, because remember we're talking about spiritually weak people who need prayer. And, and sometimes... Spiritually weak people can get to a point where they wander. And so so James exhorts us here to help the wanderer. Help the wanderer. Because notice what he says in verse 19. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. This this is a Christian. Now here's where part of the interpretation gets a little confusing for some people. Because if you read commentaries like I do, Godly people disagree. Uh, I have read godly people who I highly esteem and respect and honor who say this is referring to non-Christians. I disagree. Uh, I think the context well, the context shows us, notice as James says, he's talking to his brothers in verse 19. He, he's been talking to Christians all along. Uh, let, let me explain. What, first of all, let's answer some questions. Why should you help to start with? Because th- this, this might cause you a little bit of pain and discomfort. Uh, if you're a shepherd, if you were a literal shepherd, and you go after wandering sheep, that could cost you some time and energy and money. And so we have a wanderer here, so why should you help? Well, these verses deal with our ministry to our fellow Christians who have strayed from the truth and have gone off into sin. Because the word wanderer there, by the way, is suggesting something that is a gradual moving away from the will of God. And since the Bible often compares us to sheep, let's let's just go with that illustration. Have you ever watched a sheep? Sometimes they wander off. And they can get themselves into trouble. Uh, not, not even trying sometimes to get themselves in trouble. They do it sometimes, right? Because they'll, they, uh, they might be just eating a blade of grass here, and then they wander and, you know, their heads down. They're looking at the grass, eat another piece of grass there, and then the next one, and the next one, and, they, and before they know it, they're, they get themselves lost, and they get themselves in precarious situations sometimes. And that's kind of the idea here that that, that James is talking about. Sometimes this. The Bible would even call this backsliding. And sad to say, we, we see this tragedy occurring in our churches regularly. You, you probably know people just like I do have, who have backslid. 
who have been in that process where they've wandered. And sometimes a brother is overtaken in a fault, James chapter or Galatians six mentions. But usually usually that's I think it's more like it's kind of a result of slow, gradual spiritual decline. Uh, that's that's probably more so the case. And so you need to understand, friends, that kind of a condition is very dangerous for you and for others. It's dangerous to the offender because Hebrews chapter 12 says, God may discipline this person because he loves them, by the way, Hebrews 12 says. But he also faces the danger of committing sin unto death, 1 John 5 says. And so God disciplined the sinning members even in the Corinthian church. And, and you read 1 Corinthians 11 in that, that Lord's Supper passage, not right now, but it says that God even took some of them home to heaven because of their sin. God does that. But this backsliding is also dangerous to the church as a whole because a wandering offender can influence others and even can lead others astray. Again, using sheep as an illustration. Have you ever noticed... Sometimes you can have one wandering sheep, and you can have others follow that one wandering sheep. They're not paying attention to where they're going because, you know, George up in front there, he, he seems to know where he's going, so I'll just follow him and do what he's doing. Right? That's what sheep do. And have you ever noticed sometimes they'll jump because the one in front jumped? Right? That, that's what sheep do. They just, if the one in front does something, everyone else behind does the same thing. And so is it any wonder God compares us to sheep? You can influence others. You you can actually lead others astray. As Ecclesiastes 9.18 says, one sinner destroys much good. One sinner can destroy much good. And this is why the spiritual Christians then have to step in and have to help someone who has wandered away. Now, what is the wanderer's problem, according to verse 19? What, what, What is the wanderer's problem, according to verse 19? Notice verse 19 that it says the the origin of the problem is actually found there in that statement they've wandered from the truth by the way the truth there means the word of god the bible because the book of john says as jesus said god your word is truth your word is truth and so unless a believer stays close to the truth then it's easy to drift away you remember back a long time ago when we studied the book of Hebrews? Because one of the warnings in Hebrews says this, that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's the danger, friends. But we, we can drift away from the truth if we're not paying close attention. And so... Jesus even warned the Apostle Peter that Satan was at hand to tempt him. And this was before, even before Peter denied Christ three times. And so Peter refused to believe the word. In fact, you remember that story? The Apostle Peter even argued with Jesus. He argued with Jesus. When he should have been praying, what was Peter doing? He's sleeping. No wonder he denied Jesus three times. So that's the danger, friends. You you can wander from the truth. That's the problem here. 
But notice the result. What is the result of, of helping the wanderer? This could be you, friends. I hope it is you. I hope you are one of these spiritually mature Christians who can help a wanderer. Because you might be the wanderer yourself one day. But in verse 20, you have two results. Two results are mentioned. Notice the sinner here is a believer, is a Christian. Uh, there, there's sin in the life of this Christian. And by the way, I think, I think sin in the life of a Christian is worse than even a non-Christian. I expect a non-Christian to live out their sin nature. <laughs> I expect them to be fleshly, to be carnal, to be ungodly. Because that's their nature. So what are we to do when we see a fellow believer wandering from the truth? God says, pray for them. Yeah, pray for them, but but go beyond that. Seek to help this wanderer. Because the wanderer needs to be brought back to the right path. They've, They've got off the right path, and they need to be brought back. You say... Do Christians need to be brought back? Yes, that's what James is saying. Christians sometimes need to be brought back. And that's one reason, by the way, one reason, by the way, the Bible commands us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but to meet together as a congregation so that we can exhort one another to love and good works. Because sometimes we wander like sheep, we need to be brought back. And it's interesting, Jesus said to the Apostle Peter, this is after he had denied Christ, Jesus says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Praise God for His grace. Peter was a denier of Christ. Jesus had warned him what was going to happen. Jesus said, you need to pray Satan is going to tempt you and sift you like wheat. Be ready. Well, he wasn't. But God is gracious. And God did graciously restore Peter. And he did strengthen his brothers. But it's important that we seek to win the lost. Yes, the Bible tells us to do that. But it's also important that we sometimes, we even win the saved. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes you need to win your brother and sister in Christ when they have sinned. And sometimes they might even sin against you. And and do you know what Jesus says when that happens? When they've sinned against you, in Matthew 18, Jesus says you go to them. You go and talk to them privately, and you seek to settle the matter. And Jesus says, if they listen to you, You have gained your brother. In other words, you've won them back to God, back to the truth. Because that word gained actually means won. And it's important that we win the saved as well as the lost. So let me just highlight for you here the work of restoration that James mentions here. You're to be about the work of restoration if you are a spiritually mature Christian. And there's two tremendous results. Notice number one in verse 20 is that you can save his soul from death. You can. You can save his soul from death. Now, you ought to be asking the question as I was studying this, 
Okay, well, what kind of death is this talking about here? Well, this is part of the interpretation issue. Well, James, notice he does not say the he doesn't say the wanderer is being saved. Um, well, let me just tell you what he's talking about. Okay, he's talking about the the spiritual. He's not talking about somebody who spiritually necessary spiritually dead or that he was dying, but he's saved from death here which lies at the end of his path. This is where his sin will lead him if he keeps going down his wandering path. It's kind of like a hypothetical situation, if you will. Because sin is destructive. And unless it's, it works in a man's life and it breaks this cycle, it's surely going to result in the death of his soul, which is, by the way, an eternal death, an eternal separation from God. That's what it's going to ultimately save him from. And uh, by the way, as I was, I was, I was studying that uh, this past week, those of you who are, uh, who are fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, did you know sometimes they use Greek? Some, somebody, somebody in the writer of those movies knows Greek. Because did you know the, the word, the, the name of the character named Thanos is Greek? And it's you, a root of Thanos is used right here for the word death. Death. Very appropriate, very fitting. Because God wants to save his people, their souls, from death. It's destructive. It's a horrible thing. It's it's a it's not a good place to go, and so spiritually mature Christians can be about this work of restoration. It's a wonderful result, but there, there's a second result in verse twenty. You can cover a multitude of sins. Well, not you, but you understand the point. Because verse twenty talks about. And by the way, that's a command in verse twenty. Let him know. It's an imperative that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That, that's the result of this restoration process. Because cover, by the way, is don't, don't think of it as taken in some sense of where you're hiding the sins. You're, you're not keeping those sins secret. Rather, the term here is referring to securing forgiveness for those sins. In other words, our sins are no longer to be remembered. And how is that possible? Because in Psalm 103, it says, the, the sin, when it's forgiven, is removed as far as the east is from the west. They are placed under Christ's atoning blood. God doesn't forget stuff. He just doesn't hold it against you. That's, that's the difference here. So how do we help the wanderer? Let me just end with this, okay? Here's how you need to help the wanderer. If you are a spiritually mature Christian, there's a couple attitudes, there's a couple things you need to know as you are striving to help the wanderer. Number one, in 1 Peter 4.8, it says this. It sounds very similar to this. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. James just says, that you can help the wanderer and cover a multitude of sins. He doesn't mention love. 
But love covers a multitude of sins, according to 1 Peter 4.8. And both James and Peter, by the way, learned that from the Old Testament. Because in Proverbs 10, verse 12, here's what it says. Look at that. It says that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offense. So, first of all, how do you help the wanderer? You, you have to have an attitude of love. If you don't have an attitude of love, do not attempt to help the wanderer. You can actually do great damage to the wanderer if you're not coming with an attitude of love. You, 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 can, you can destroy them. It's love here that's covering the multitude of sins. But it, it's not just love, right? There's something else that needs to be attached and connected to the love. And number two, we see here that you must combine truth with love. Combine truth with love. Because what's the problem? Remember, we, we highlighted the problem in verse 19. The problem is they have wandered from the truth. Therefore, the solution is they need truth. And this doesn't mean that love just sweeps all the, the nasty dirt and the bugs and everything else under the carpet, under the rug. You've heard that saying, I hope. No, that is not, that is not what we're to do here. Uh, where there is love, there must also be truth. Ephesians 4.15 reminds us we're to be speaking the truth in love. And where there's truth, there's going to be honest confession of sin. There's going to be cleansing from God. Now, do you understand that love not only helps the offender to face their sin and deal with their sin, but love also assures the offender that those sins, once they are forgiven are remembered no more by God. And by the way, if you're one who forgives someone else, that means you're not going to bring it up in their face ever again. Because you're to forgive 70 times 7, as Jesus said. And that doesn't mean you keep track that when you get to 491, you're just going to let them have it. That's not Jesus' point. But it's a limitless number. So love is assuring the offender here that those sins are forgiven to the point that they're not going to be remembered anymore. So friends, if you think you're a spiritually mature Christian, you're to help the wanderer. Be gracious. Because if you're like me, you're going to find yourself in need of my fellow brothers and sisters when I need help. Because I've wandered from the truth. You need help as well. And so combine truth with love. It's a powerful, powerful truth, uh, 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 an attitude that will help the wanderer. So that's James. James has showed us what spiritual maturity looks like. Do you match up? May I remind you, none of us do. None of us do. Uh, you need one who has, just like I do. Jesus says he's the only one who's good. None of us match up to God's standard. But uh, nevertheless, that's the goal. That's, that's your goal. That's what it looks like to be a spiritually mature Christian. So may God enable you to be a mature Christian. Let me encourage you with another wonderful hymn as we end the book of James. 
One, one, a, a hymn that's been very precious to me over years says this, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt, Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. May you revel in that glorious grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the book of James. May we be spiritually mature as we've been exhorted to be in this wonderful book. May we understand the illustrations that have been given. And may you open our spiritual eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. May we not forget and, and as James has said, may we not come to the mirror of your word and look at it and forget. But may we remember, do something with these glorious words. May we do it all for your honor and glory. May we do it because we love you and we want to please you. Enable us, by your grace, to be spiritually mature. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.